0: Hey, this is Richard Howard, host of the Zero to Something podcast. Thanks for joining me for today's episode with Emma Kennedy. For those of you who don't know Emma, she is an incredibly prolific writer of books, of screenplays, and of tweets, as she talks about in the the episode. She has just written an incredible book called Never Ending Summer, which follows three women as they make life-altering decisions. Emma is, and I cannot stress this enough, an unbelievable guest she is so funny and it was an absolute blast talking to her this show was actually recorded a couple of months ago but we saved it till now uh, for when the book was released and I think it is a great episode that you'll really enjoy definitely by the book it's called never-ending summer and and if this is the first zero to something episode that you're stumbling across, make sure to listen to some of the other episodes. Please rate and review the podcast and this episode on iTunes. Every rate and every review helps. Follow me on Twitter. It's at underscore rhoward. Now, onto the episode. Sometimes I talk about this little voice in the back of the head that just never lets you rest. Do you have any idea what kind of drives you and motivates you to
1: create? Gosh, that's a very good question. It's almost compulsive. I'm incredibly driven. I I think really, rather than it being a creative thing, it's more about a work ethic thing. I I cannot be lazy. And it was something I only discovered two years ago as to how fast my brain is constantly, constantly moving. I will have ideas for for books five times a day. And that's even when I'm writing one, you know. And I have yeah. a, a book where I have to write down one sentence ideas in case I, I, I forget them. Because I, I might not come to writing up that idea for another five years or whatever. But... About two years ago at Christmas, my nephew, who was six at the time, he he came to me and someone had given him a Lego set, and no one would help him make it. And he said, "Oh, will you help me make it, please?" And I said, "Of course, I will." And we sat and we made it. And it was only then making that Lego that I realised my brain had stopped. And and what I mean by that was there was there was no noise going yeah. on in it; it was just went. And I hadn't properly realised until that moment how. My, I, I, just flick, 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 flick all the time. It's like I am a prolific user of Twitter. I've got, yeah. I've, I think I've done over two hundred thousand tweets for goodness sake, and yet I still managed to write eleven books in yeah. the in the time. <laughs> that I have tweets so I I have Twitter on all day long I have two screens so I have Twitter up and I'm able to just go over there and then go yeah. there I now have three screens in order <laughs> that I can be doing different things on different screens it's okay. it's bonkers
0: yeah and and when you have <laughs> an idea for for a book and you wrote yeah. it down in, in, in your little notebook. Is is it like a compulsion to, to get out, to get words on the page? Like you can't not think about it until there's words on the page. Even if you actually realise after writing something, that might actually not be such a good idea for a book, but I need to write something and kind of follow this thought to its conclusion.
1: Well, I, I will always start with a sentence. Okay. And uh, because you always have to think about the pitching process. And I think that this is this is the point where my experience from being a screenwriter and working in, in television and in children's animation works really well because when you are pitching an idea if you can't pitch it in one sentence it's not sellable if yeah. you have to explain it it's not sellable so yeah. like if you think of my book the tent the bucket and me it's about one family's attempt, disastrous attempts to go on holiday in the seventies. That's it. That tells you everything you need to know about the book. So yeah. it's that. It, th- this book I've just written, "Never Ending Summer." It's about the impact on two women of the publication of the of the female eunuch in nineteen seventy one. That's it. That's the book. So. You have to start with a really good sentence that you can say to anybody and then that person knows exactly what it is. The next stage for me is as some people will immediately start writing, I don't. I will then spend my, uh, four, four to six weeks just thinking about that sentence and I will do research around it and I will say, okay, yep, yeah, there's something that, that's here that's based in fact, I could use that. The, the, there's there's a flavor here that I'm getting. So I know who that is. I need to understand who my characters are going to be. I need to understand who I'm going to like. I need yeah. to understand who I'm going to hate. I need to understand what who the central character is. I need to understand yeah. what, what their want is versus their need. I need to understand what the journey they're going to go on is. I need to know whether the, the, the thing that's holding them back is another person Or a floor in themselves it's like these are the building blocks it's it's sort of like if a man said or a woman said okay here's a here's a bare field now I'm going to build a house in it you start at the bottom you've got to dig out the foundation before you can start laying the bricks. And that is exactly the same with a story. A story has layers and and very prescribed layers actually, which you can learn. And I think this is the one bit about writing, where if you want to be a writer, this is the bit you can learn. You can understand the roadmap of a story. And so after I've done the research, which I suppose is digging out the basement and the foundations, at that point, I will do a very detailed chapter breakdown so that I know every single beat that is going to happen throughout the book. And I don't have to do that, but it saves you a lot of time at the other end, when when you're at the end of your first draft, because the more work you do at this point before you start writing, the less you have to do when it comes to second draft because for me first drafts are very much get it down get it done but the book happens in the second draft so that's how that's that's my process that's how I work and and I and I'm always methodical and again I've said this many times but if you're a writer or you're anyone creative you are a small business that's that's yeah. who you actually are. You're not someone lying on a chaise long with with a, with your hand on your forehead, staring out the window all day long. You know, having wafty thoughts. You're not. You're a small business, and if you were a shop, you wouldn't be shut five days a week, and then you might open up for an hour on a Tuesday. You know that that's that's not that's not what the, how you should approach it. Being a writer is exactly the same as being a butcher. It is exactly the same as, as, as running a clothes shop. It's exactly the yeah. same as having a market stall. You've got to be open for business. So, again, I'm really strict about this. Monday to Friday, I am at my desk from 8 a.m. until 6 without fail. And sometimes I'll write one sentence and sometimes yeah. I'll write 3,000 words. But the point is, I've turned up for work. Yeah. So it's like, and I think when you think about it like that, that it's not a calling, it's a job. It completely changes your attitude towards it because nobody will make a living from being a writer unless they do some.
0: Yeah. I think that is, so I I interviewed uh, Stu Turton. I don't know if you know him. He he wrote, he's written a couple of novels, like really interesting kind of Agatha Christie-esque novels. And he won mm. or was nominated for the Costa Prize and, you know, lovely, lovely guy. And he said, you know, a lot of people come to me and they ask me, how can I be a writer and what can I do? And I tell them, you have to sit down and write. So many people want mm. to be a writer and do this thing, but they don't do the disciplined thing of sitting down and and writing because they're, I'm a little bit scared of what it would look like and they're they're scared well, of showing people
1: yeah I mean, I mean i think that that is the thing is that it, that is the big worry for creative people it, it's that moment where you put your head over the parapet and it's being judged you're being judged and yeah. people who do other jobs you, you, you don't you're not judged by the general public. You you might get an assessment once a year from a manager who's who's one step above you, yeah. who you're not that into and you don't really value his opinion. But the, yeah. the point is, <laughs> one, of, one of the, the I mean, it, it's sort of, you just have to accept, you have to have a skin as thick as a rhinoceros because when you are creative... <laughs> part of the job is that you will spend your entire life being judged by strangers that's that's what it is that's that's what this job is and some people will will like you some people will love you some people won't have an opinion on you at all and some people will hate your guts and that's that's just how it 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 rolls and the thing is is that you are neither as as bad as 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 the per, as the person who says you know the worst thing you could that that could ever be said about you you are not as bad as that but you are not as good as the person who thinks you're the best thing since sliced bread either yeah. you're somewhere in between and some things that you will produce will be really good and and you'll be, think you can sit back and go oh do you know what that was really good. And then there'll be yeah. other things where you think, oh, that could have been a bit better. And then there'll be things we think, well, I got away with that. That's a piece of rubbish. And <laughs> it's the, it is the spectrum of creativity. Not everything you do is going to be the best that you can do. And that's yeah. actually something that spurs me on because you're always thinking because you do get better and I think that's another thing is is people when you're starting out you shouldn't be afraid to be rubbish everyone is rubbish when they start out if if I had left being a lawyer to become a a, a pianist a professional pianist I wouldn't have sat down on day one and been able to play Rachmaninoff in the Royal Albert Hall I'd have sat down at a borrowed piano and played chopsticks or attempted it you get better it's writing is something you have to practice and there's two things that happen is that is that you have to the first thing you have to do is work out what it is you've got to say and what it is that you write about the best. And yeah. that's a process of just discovering who you are as an artist and what your style is. But also it's about finding the things that excite you as a writer and the subject matters that that feel important to you, because I I think that's when you do your best work is when you're writing about things you care about.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think from my perspective, so I have a day job uh, like everybody else, which actually I feel like I'm very lucky. It's a very good day job. I'm very happy with it. But my passion, I guess, thing that I'd love to do is, is screenwriting. And so the, when I talk about the voice at the back of your head, for me, it's that thing. It's I, I have this idea, and it won't it won't stop talking to me unless I get it down mm. on paper and I write it. And mm. you know, for years and years, I was very shy about this. I didn't tell anybody this was like a hobby or like a passion or whatever. But when I started to tell people, my friends and family, they were. They were like so supportive and they went out of their way to try and make introductions to people they might know second or third hand or whatever. Yeah. And I think, you know, that thing you talk about, like kind of putting your head above the parapet, it is very scary because yeah, you're being very hard. vulnerable. Yeah. But at the same time, the people that really love you and they care about you will try and make, will try kind of tie themselves in knots to help you be successful in the thing you're passionate about if you really, truly are.
1: And also a big important thing is listening to people who know what they're talking about. So, yeah. I mean, there'll be, you know, it, it, it's, I love notes. I absolutely love them. And it, write, every single thing you write ends up being an act of collaboration, whether it's, whether it's with your script editor, if you're working on a children's animation or a sitcom or a drama, or your, your book editor. It, it's an act of collaboration because a really, I, I've worked as a script editor as well. And what you realise is that your job isn't isn't to rewrite what someone else uh, uh, someone else's work. That's not your job as a script editor. Your script editor, as a script editor, your job is to consider the writer like a block of wood, yeah. and and they are and they've got to carve the best version of themselves out of it. And you've yeah. got to try and help them get there. And and there's there's things you know there's very obvious things, some some everything always improves via fresh eyes there's no doubt about that nobody hands in a perfect piece of work ever but I think that I think the more successful writers are the ones who embrace that process rather than crumbling at the first piece of criticism and that's a big lesson to learn uh, if you want to be a writer is that you you take all criticism on the chin and then you action it and yeah. I always take the view, every single note I get, I won't refuse it. I will always action every single note, even if I violently disagree with it. Okay. And then we will look at what, what, what it looks like after I've actioned the note. And okay. sometimes I will have been right. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I will then get a note going, no, yeah, you're right to put it back to what it was. And I don't yeah. mind doing that. But it it because it's that process, you have to persuade your script editor or your book editor that they yeah. might not have got something wrong. It's no point just going, no, you're wrong. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Do it and then have that conversation. And it's the brilliant thing al- about words. You can always change them back again.
0: And, and kind of going a little bit back about to, to just like you specifically. So we're talking about your writing now, your books. But were you always kind of like compelled and driven in this way when you were doing you know screenwriting like everything from like screenwriting and and acting and you know breaking a guinness world record is has there always been this this kind of like drive to never stop and it's like a million things going on in your head and when you get the idea i think i'm going to go and challenge a guinness world record what one should i do oh it's going to be that one and then do you just like not stop until you until you kind of do it
1: yes i mean people who know me do know this about me, is that if you it, there is a saying amongst my pals, and it is, if you want something done, get Kennedy. Because <laughs> I, I am really determined. Yeah. I, it's like if I was a stick of rock and you cut me open, it would have determination written all the way through it. And I yeah. think it's just, number one, I really like a challenge. Number two, sort of the more ridiculous the challenge, the more I like it. And number yeah. three, I have the attitude of... Nothing is impossible, actually. And if you say to me, no, you can't do that, then I will do it. So there's a bit of stubbornness as well. There's no doubt about that. But I just, I I, I made myself a promise on the day that I stopped being a lawyer because that was, I was miserable. I was really properly miserable. And it it was that feeling of, I am wasting my life. And I thought, you know, you only get one twirl around the planet. What's the point? Of wasting your life, or it's certainly your working life, doing something yeah. that you don't love doing, and I do. I feel passionately about this: is that everybody, what whoever they are, will have something they're interested in, and yeah. whatever you are interested in, there'll be a job that goes either directly in it or around it. Just if you're not, if you're not happy going to work, if you think this is an absolute ball ache and I don't want the rest of my life to be like this just have the courage of your convictions and change your life because you know what it's possible you can do it all you need is just to be freaking determined I didn't have any money my family don't have any money you know I I come from proper working class stock and it's just I don't know maybe that was it. it it was like I had it bashed into me from day dot that nothing was ever going to be handed to me on a plate and that nobody, you know, there was no magic pot of money that was going to save me at any point if I, you know, failed or whatever. And I just had it bashed into me that, that if you want to make things happen, then you have to make them happen. So it was all down to me. And I think when you've got that attitude, well, it's just, you know, that is the attitude of being self-employed, isn't it?
0: One of the questions I wanted to ask you was about when you stopped being a lawyer. Right, because i think you, mm. did you do what three years
1: uh, well if you include law school as well as well it was all in it was five years so it was yeah. two years at law school then two years as an article clerk and then one year as a qualified solicitor okay uh, it was like going to prison i may <laughs> as well go to prison
0: i did a law degree that's what i studied in yeah. university but then yeah. i never did anything afterwards because I, mm. I think it was six months in and we were doing contract law and I was like, oh. this isn't for me, God. because no. the only thing I'm particularly interested in is like the criminal law and being a barrister and being in a wig yeah. and up in court and being yeah. like, you know, but they get paid about 10,000 pounds a year, barristers. Mm. And mm. that was not survivable. So I realized I was like, all right, well, it's a good degree to have. I'll do that. But for for you, so I, what I want to say is like, so you, you have this, you've got what well, could be like in ahead of you like a a really interesting you know successful path Mm. to you know a really good career and you're like yeah I want to go and do the thing that I want to do like how did you feel do you remember how you felt
1: in that moment were you scared were you excited were you like without this kind of net underneath you see it's 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 a tricky one because I I did an English degree and then I just had an absolute brain fart and decided that I needed to get a proper job so hence I applied for law school but But to get to law school, I had to be offered a job by a law firm who then paid for me to go to law school. So on day one, you can't escape because you can't obviously repay the law firm the money that they've just shelled out for you to go to law school. So you have to see it through. And within five minutes of the first lecture which I know is slightly bad luck it was on trusts which is never going which is never going to be you know light light up any room i yeah. realised i'd made a terrible mistake but that was it i was locked in i was locked in so this is i often say it was like going to prison so i just yeah. treated it like that that it was like going to prison and then and then once i'd started sort of actually at the law firm i mean it was it was a little bit better but the the only the only bit I enjoyed during my article clerkship was litigation. That 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 at least had some fun involved in it. Yeah. The best thing that the oh this this is I've, I've actually I've actually just written about this in the in the in the book that I'm currently writing. But I, and I'd forgotten about it. But there was one day when I was I was working on a case. And it was a contested will and a a gentleman of a certain age had died and he'd inexplicably left all of his money to a very young man who had only recently sort of turned up on the scene. Mm -hmm. So his family were contesting it. And we were sent to his flat down in Bournemouth and we were looking for for basically for evidence for for any any documentation that could prove undue influence and we were supposed to be meeting the solicitor for the young man at the flat at the same time but she didn't turn up and we took the view well look you know we, we we're we're on clients time here they're being charged for this this is this will be a complete waste of of their money if we don't go in and we it's not like we're going to steal anything or make anything up everything will have to be disclosed so uh, I was there as 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 the as an article clerk at this point so I was with a solicitor so he made the decision the decision we'd go in but we're under strict instructions that, that I had to provide a very detailed list of anything that I touched or moved or looked at Okay, and uh, we walked in, and the the solicitor <laughs> said to me, "Oh, please, will will you do the bedroom?" And I said, "Yeah, right, yeah, I'll do the bedroom." And I went in, and I was looking around to see if there was a chest of drawers or a writing table or something, and there, w- there was just this big sort of built-in wardrobe. And I opened it, and holy hell, holy hell! If I say to you, I made a list that was that was basically a uh, large black dildo with a face <laughs> on it. Not sure. It looks a bit like it looks a bit like the bloke from 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 Lovejoy. Yeah. Anal beads, large fist, so, handcuffs, oh. <laughs> and wizard's outfit. Full wizard's outfit. It, I, I it was unbelievable. It was Harry like, Potter was before like, Harry Potter. It was like, it was like Harry. Po- it was like a very dark <laughs> Harry Potter. Yeah, but but so i mean there were occasional days where i would enjoy it but i again i mean this this is this is sort of an example of i don't know where this came from it certainly wasn't confidence what it was was my my mother had instilled in me a real sense of if someone's fucking you over just fuck them back do you know and i and in the last six months of my article clerkship and I was at a very big law firm very big big name law firm and they and for whatever reason I think they had just is they put me in charge of the the company in-house magazine and it had become very popular and I'd and I'd become quite sort of tongue-in-cheek yeah. having a pop at partners and, and making fun of them and, and all of this and I think I and I think they would decided that I was a little bit too much to handle And there was another building where the tax department resided. And I was told that my last seat was going to be in tax. So basically, they wanted me out of the building. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought I'm not doing it. I'm sorry, it's a complete six. I'm wasting my a complete waste of my time. I- I've got no yeah. interest in doing tax. I said to them, I either want to stay in litigation or I'll go back to company. Please, yeah. I put the request in very politely, and I'll never forget this. That a one of the senior partners, who is a man, just looked at me, and all all I had done was I was sitting down, and after they said to me, "We're sending you to tax," I literally replied like this. I'd say, I said, Do you know, I I don't think i will I will gain anything from going to taxes. Is, is there a possibility, please, of going to litigate staying in litigation yeah. or i'll I could go back to company that That was how I said it, and he yeah. said, "All right, calm down, and I will never forget that moment yeah. and i it infuriated me. Because yeah. I knew that I there were male contemporaries of mine who had, who'd been told where they were going. They'd said, no, I don't want to go there. And they'd, they'd had their request allowed. So I just thought, fuck you. Yeah. And I did something that nobody does. I left. Yeah, I went and I, I applied for a job that was yeah. for, I saw a job at, that was for a newly qualified. Now I wasn't newly qualified, but I just had six months to go. And I applied for it and, the, and, they, and they gave me the, the job. And so I left with six months to go. And the fury of this very large law firm was was quite something to behold. But it was just like, no, I'm sorry, you're asking me to waste six months of my life and I'm not prepared to do it. I'm not going to learn anything. What's the point? And yes. I think that that has always been my attitude of don't waste your time. Yeah. Well, there's, there's nothing I, I just... there's nothing to be gained from it but the yeah. ne- the next firm I went to if I was ever going to love being a lawyer that was the yeah. place okay that was perfect for me you know the senior partner was amazing he he's a, a larger than life a character who will occasionally pops up on the news yeah. I worked with Keir Starmer on the McLibel trial I had the most amazing clients who were all completely bonkers and brilliant. And I did really interesting things. I was a litigator, but even that couldn't hold me because I just had this nagging, what if? I knew what I, it was like, I knew what I was going to be best at, but I didn't know if if that makes sense. I had that, everyone keeps telling you, you should be a writer because I was a very prolific uh, letter writer. I used to write just hundreds of letters to, back in the days when people wrote letters can you remember those days no one writes no. letters anymore <laughs> and i used to write letters all the time and they would be funny and and people yeah. loved them and loved getting them and everything like that and uh, so yeah i just made the leap i just stood on the edge of the precipice and made the leap okay, because right. i and couldn't i couldn't i couldn't quieten down that what if anymore
0: yeah you could not and then and so, screaming at me yeah and so you, met, you mentioned your mom there. I just wonder. I don't. I, I couldn't see if you had any siblings, but I wonder if you do. No. If they're about the same way. Okay. No. Okay. Brett. Brett That'll be, Brett, be an interesting comparison.
1: Brett. Brenda. Brenda brought down the hatch after the first one. <laughs>
0: yes. That was. That was enough. Fair enough. When did you realize that you were funny? Or when did you realize people like that you could make people laugh? Age
1: three.
0: Really. Okay. And this.
1: And this was sort of. It was sort of unintentional, but I can really remember being aware of it of what I was doing. So okay. when I was three, I had two records that I was obsessed with. One was Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass that I used to love listening to. But the one I really loved listening to was the soundtrack to Hair, the musical. And I learned and I listened to it so much, I knew all the songs off by heart. And I, and I was an angelic looking child. Yeah. I, I was your absolute classic, big green eyes, blonde curly hair wouldn't melt butter wouldn't (laughs) melt cherub of a child and my parents were teachers and they took me into I think my nursery was closed one day or something and so they took me in to their school and I was in the staff room and uh, the drama teacher came over to me and did that thing of bending over. I, and this was something I remember being very aware of as a child because my parents always talked to me as if I was their equal and a grown-up. Yeah. And I, and as an only child, this is something you, you're very used to. You are, you are more used to the company of adults than you are to, with other children. And she bent down and she looked at me and she put on this baby voice. And she said, "Do you want to sing me a little song?" <laughs> and so I looked at her and I and I said, "Yeah, yes, I yes, I can sing you a song. Yes." And I <laughs> sang and I sang sodomy. From her, which I don't know if you know, but it literally goes, Sodomy, fallacious, pederasty, why do these words sound so nasty? Masturbation can be fun. On the Sutra, one, and I literally stood, stood and sung literally head back, singing it yeah. at the top of my voice and my dad said he was literally he was choking laughing <laughs> he was absolutely choking with laughter yeah. and he said all he could hear was 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 coffee spoons dropping what was that what just happened
0: yeah i love that i think i think it's amazing that your dad was like Because there's two reactions he could have had, right? Obviously, one is the, like, you know, busting the gut laughing. And the other one is, oh, my God, what is she doing? And, like, try and drag you over there. But I love that he was encouraging of it.
1: Well, the thing was, you know, I mean, the 70s was a very weird time anyway, for so many reasons but i was very blessed in that my parents were were basically they were hippies they were from that sort of late 60s whole thing and were very progressive and were very liberal and they they my mother especially was somebody who was impervious to embarrassment and if anything she loved it if i did something terrible so (laughs) so so and and it was weird because i was very well behaved I i was i was never naughty but I did inherit my mother's sense of mischief. There's no doubt about
0: Yeah. So, I, um, so I've got three sons and I delight in embarrassing them as like yeah. an embarrassing dad. And I do have yeah. like plans to continue to do so throughout their life. Like I have like benchmarks of you know because so so we're jewish and so when you have your bar mitzvah this is these are the photographs and these are the videos that are going to be on display yes, to good. everybody you care about and yes. you're going to be 13 and that means you're going to be the most self-conscious mm. you're ever going to be in your entire life and i cannot wait till these mm. things happen
1: i think it's very important when you're a parent is to give them a lifelong hang-up about something it, it's oh, yeah. it's the gift that parents <laughs> must give
0: but, but my eldest is very good he's seven he's very good at knowing when i'm joking and um like he always like you know so he'll go are you serious I go yeah and they go mummy, is daddy telling the truth and she'll go she'll, she's a terrible liar
1: i love lying to children <laughs> it's it is a great game to play there I, I once took two of my friend's children round windsor park and uh, that there, there were these big gates and the, and uh, we got to them and and the littlest one who was five said what why do they why do they lock the gates every day and i said well they lock the gates because because when everyone goes home The queen comes out to pick up the litter. That's what she does. (laughs) She just... She does a little sweep, yeah. just picking up litter, <laughs> and totally believes you. This is the brilliant thing about children under seven; they will generally believe anything you tell them.
0: Yeah, yeah. See, I did that to my, I did that to my wife when we were dating as well, because she's she was so you know she brought up in a very nice family down in in North London, and yeah. like nobody, and my my dad was very similar to that. Like, he just like loved playing tricks and mm. he was a joker. And so we were watching like football highlights once when we were dating in university, and there was I guess a footballer had broken his nose, and so we had like one of those masks on and she went who's that why is he wearing a mask I went, oh that's the secret footballer and she was like what I went, that's the secret footballer. he's like amazing at football but he wears this mask when nobody knows who he is so that you know he can go and live like a normal life and she's like mm. oh my god
1: that's like amazing the stig. like the stig yeah. but for <laughs> yeah, football absolutely yeah. she
0: completely
1: bought oh, it that's for quite some time i, I persuaded a, a three-year-old once that i had been to school with darth vader totally <laughs> believed me and then I, for for many years after, I would send him letters from Darth Vader <laughs> with with pictures of stormtroopers he liked that day yeah. and things like that. But yeah, he totally believed me. Yeah,
0: no, it's awesome. Oh, what a tangent! Before we, do, I, I want to dive into the book, but before we do that, coming back to kind of you and everything, everything that you've done, everything that you've achieved, do you ever feel a sense of satisfaction of like I am pleased, I'm like I'm done, or is it well I've done that book and now it's on to the next thing because I've got. 10 ideas in my notes.
1: again do you know what this is a really interesting question because i was asked once not not that long ago a couple of years ago whether i thought of myself as successful and i had to stop and think about that because on one level of course i'm successful I, i've i have managed to have a career a non-stop career for yeah. over 20 years Primarily, as as a performer and and then as a writer, I make a car- a career from writing, and and not many people can say they've done that. So yes, on one level, I am successful, but nothing I have ever done has made me rich. Yeah, which which is a lot of people's benchmark for oh you know you, you're you're not famous and and you haven't made you know none of your books have gone ballistic i've i've had two on the bestsellers list but this is the other thing you can have a book on the bestseller list it doesn't make you rich yeah not necessarily it's it's like tiny tiny there'll be one percent of writers who are actually rich because of of books they have written tiny and what's interesting about that is is once you sort of get to that level you just stay there it, it, yeah. it, if you have one book that goes but Jojo Moyes is the classic example here who I somebody I absolutely love her books did nothing really until her 11th book which was me before you and and now she's like you know yeah. it's crazy so I I've never had that moment so I suppose on a very coming back to I'm a small business model of working you know i keep going because I, i've i've got bills to pay i can't retire that there, there, there's 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 none of that going on so it's it, i just come back to it it's it's my job this is my job yeah. and once, once
0: you've completed a bit once you've finished so like i know there's like an ongoing editing process and then it prints and then there's going to be a yeah. paperback but do you feel like almost like a sense of relief or satisfaction or is it just you're constantly churning almost
1: i i'm always on to the next thing
0: Always the
1: next. I think that's the thing because I I I have no emotional attachment to books. Okay, it's it's quite interesting. It, it I I am not a literary writer. I'm a commercial writer. I'm I am somebody who writes for hire. So whatever I'm asked to do, whatever I get away, that's that's the job in hand. So you know you you, you yeah. write according to what what is required of you. You know I've written books for celebrities. That you will never know that I have written. (laughs) You know, this is this is. They're even slightly funny. We can assume the celebrity didn't write it. This this is who this is. I am a I am a working writer. Yeah. You know, I I I I'm not a great literary figure. I I am a competent writer. That's who I am. And there are so many. And there is an element of luck in this. You, you will yeah. know of, of books that have seemingly gone absolutely crackers, that when you read them, you go, really? Really? it sold yeah. a million copies? How? It's, <laughs> it's not that good. You know, there are books like that. And then you will read books that you think are absolutely brilliant that have done nothing. Yeah. The average book on the Booker Prize list will have sold less than 900 copies.
0: Really, okay.
1: you know that th- this is what we're looking at. There, there is a vast disparity between books that are considered literary books and then books that are commercial fiction books. And some yeah. will fly, and some will, and some won't. It can come. It can come down to a cover that can yeah. transform a book and, and persuade people to read it. There's no rhyme nor reason to it. It will. It will be how good your PR team is at your publishing house and who they can persuade you know to either read it or review it or or whatever so my attitude is i take the advance yep i complete the work i do the publicity required and then i don't give it a second thought because i have no control over what then happens to that book i have no control over how it's received i have no control over who's going to like it i have no control over who isn't going to like it it's it's like it doesn't matter i've done the job and now yeah. I've got to move on to another job.
0: Fair enough. Okay. Awesome. Let's go on to the book. So I've got it here.
1: Yes. Never-ending summer. Never-ending uh, summer. Why doesn't it do that when I
0: open the the? Oh, the it book should cover? do, shouldn't
1: it? It Really? You see, should. this is this is what we just discussed about. If that happened, if every time you opened it, it went, you would probably buy it.
0: I would have bought ten <laughs> copies.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. What do you want to know? Yes.
0: So I like. It, this isn't the normal genre that i would read personally no it's uh, it's because i'm a man age. you understand yes, yes, and and i only read man. books with, with the amount of death and <laughs> destruction and things yes. but i really like i really really enjoyed it and i'm oh, so good. Super. and and part of me i i don't know i part of me just wanted to say like you should like people should read this book even if you don't think it is like a genre that you would normally read or whatever because i guess you know even if you're a commercial writer writer or hire you're very good at it oh, and it's thank a really you. engrossing book and and it, and it's really funny as well. Um, so I wanted to ask it like a couple of things. So there's I guess there, there's two halves to the story of the Neverending Summer. There's the one half which is B and Agnes who are the mm. 20 year olds who mm. are escaping a dull village life for a little bit of adventure. And yes. then there is Agnes's mum Florence, mm. who I don't know. I guess she's like a, a 1950s housewife is the Correct. best way to describe it.
1: That's exactly how to describe her. Yes. Who,
0: who you know she she cooks, she cleans, she tidies. She doesn't really have a life of her own as such yeah. and she she kind of goes through this the, this moment where she realizes because her, her friend is is filed for a divorce and mm. she goes through this moment of, of almost realization and basically runs away i don't want to kind of like give away too much of the book but there's a big divide between the 20 year olds and and the mum and and the dad and i just wonder do you think that generational divide still exists it existed in the 70s but i wonder oh, now as a, as a parent then, myself yeah. if We're always trying to be down with the kids and and whether those generational devices kind of. Do
1: do you know what I'm minded of at this moment is, and I don't know if you're old enough, but I can definitely remember sitting on the floor in in our sitting room when Top of the Pops was on and it being the most important program on the television of any given week. And you would sit on the floor and you would stare up. And this was obviously before you could tape it or anything like that. You had to like just you would just watch it transfixed, yeah. trying to remember every single line and uh, of the song and every single moment on it. And your parent would come in and see you watching it and go, who's that? Referring to the band. And yeah, you would think, how can you not know? What <laughs> what is wrong with you? And then, I and I can remember my dad coming in and the Human League were, and he said, "Who's that?" And I said, "I just went, it's the Human <laughs> League, ha, duh, Dad." And then going, "I'm never gonna be like you and not yeah. know who someone is on top of the pops." And lo and behold, what happens? Yeah, you don't know who that. You don't know who any of them are. You'd, you'd, yeah. I, I've got. I haven't got a clue who who the songsters, the popular songsters, <laughs> the, song- the popular, the popular songsters of of the two thousand and twenties. I don't. I don't know who's down with the kids. I haven't got a clue. Yeah. I'm fifty three now, and I just think it 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 happens. It's a natural yeah. thing that happens. You know, people now have have a term of abuse for us. We're called boomers. It's yeah. so, like, yeah, okay, okay, boomer, which is them just basically telling us to shut up. We're not interested yeah. in us anymore. <laughs> and I think it's that is something you just have to accept that yeah. happens when you sort of so I, are over 50, is that people in their 20s just aren't that into you.
0: Yeah. So I, I think there's definitely, like, the cultural divide of, like, the music and the TV shows and, and the movies. But I, I was meaning more kind of like the, the specific generation. But, like, so the... Florence, who's the mum, and, and William who's the father, their generation is very much very stiff upper lip, mm. never complained, never anything like that and 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 that's very separate from their daughters who are. One who's an artist and the other who's kind of exploring and finding herself. And, and nowadays we're, we're, I think, like, we're much more, I don't know the, the right phrase for it, the right word for it. We're just more, I guess, open to our kids and so that we're not as, as separated generationally, yeah. culturally maybe, yeah. but generationally maybe I, not.
1: I, I would agree with that. I, th- I The reason why I chose 1971 was because it was such a seminal year. For women, especially, and it's right at the beginning of the book. The female eunuch has just come out, and that was actually the start of of that. That was my one sentence. That was the female yeah. eunuch has been published, and this is what happens to the two women who read it. That's yeah. it. That's the sentence. And I remember my mother coming in with the female eunuch. It was like it was like a hand grenade had gone off in the room. You know, that was the impact of that book. And I and I yeah. and I don't know if that could happen again now with any book or anything. But yeah. it, it was a book that taught young women that they were allowed to be proud of their own sexuality and that they were able to be sexual creatures and have autonomy over their bodies and how they felt and what they did. Because bear in mind, in 1971, a woman wasn't, could, could be legally refused to be served in a pub unless she was with a man. You know, she, a woman couldn't have a mortgage. You, you yeah. couldn't even remotely expect to have a career that was on a par with, with any male peer. Yeah, yeah th- this was a woman's life. And during the course of doing research for the book, th- th- there's one thing that I was reading up about the very first women's lib meeting that took place and the okay. minutes of it. And what was extraordinary was that the word sexism didn't yet exist. Okay. And, and they understood what was happening to them and they could express how they felt and what they wanted but they didn't have the language to explain what it actually was and that fascinated me that yeah. they knew that, that 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 they were just treated as objects by men they knew that they were paid slaves and they really were un, unpa- sorry unpaid slaves yeah. but they didn't have the words they didn't they they were really sort of scrabbling around to try and explain what it was they were experiencing, but couldn't. They they understood it, but they couldn't yeah. vocalise it. And I think for women who are in their twenties, they began to see sort of a pathway out of it and became quite radicalised. There was there was, a, there was a period of time in which feminism was really radical and angry and furious, yeah. uh, and probably rightly so. And it probably needed to be that way because. You know that's how you affect change or whatever but for their mothers yeah. it would be 1950s housewives it was a different thing entirely because for them it was i i, I think a, a bit more serious and upsetting yeah. because what it was saying to them was your entire life has been pointless and i think for anybody who suddenly thinks your life has been pointless imagine what that does to you and imagine how that makes you feel and that's what happens to Florence in in the book is that she suddenly realizes her life is pointless and so she does something about it.
0: Absolutely and then one of the things I would ask I guess we might have already discussed this when we talked about you kind of leaving law was so Agnes and Beatrice are the 20 year olds they they run off they pretend they're going to go to Europe they actually go to London and because they 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 don't want to give up on the hope of a more exciting, more interesting life because they I guess they come from a small village and and they've been to secretarial school and so I wonder did you ever have that and this so where they have the dread I guess of a, a dull uninteresting life and I guess is that the dread that you kind of felt when you were sitting there well, as it's a lawyer
1: in, it, it's interesting because that there, there is a there is a slightly autobiographical autobiogra- element with between me and Agnes in this okay. because Agnes in the book. Was someone who was supposed to go to university, and yeah. then she 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 gets glandular fever, and so all hope of that is out out the window, and she's bunged off to secretarial college because that was that was just what happened. You were bunged off to secretarial college, and you would be a secretary until you married someone, and then you'd be a yeah. housewife. That was it. That was it. Yeah. And what happened to me was I had been offered a place at Oxford and I was obsessed with going to Oxford and I don't know where that came from because nobody in my family had even been to university, let alone Oxford. I genuinely don't know where it came from, but I was obsessed. And I went to a village disco and I kissed a boy and I got glandular fever. And that was the end of that. And I didn't get the grades that I—I to satisfy the offer. And instead of going into clearing and going to another university, I, I went to work in a hotel instead as a washer-upper. And then I was promoted to vegetable peeler. And I thought, no, I'm doing well here. I'm, do- I'm <laughs> doing I'm doing well. I'm working up the ranks. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for a, for a chance encounter with an old teacher who'd retired, so she didn't know what had happened to me. She was called Mrs. Graby. And I bumped into her and it was September and I should have been, you know, off to university. And she said, oh, you are, are you off to university? And I, And I looked at my shoes and said, no, no, I'm not. No, and I'm working at the hotel and I'm peeling vegetables. And she said, Emma, she sort of gave me that look of incredulity that you never want to see ever yeah. in your life. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, Emma, anyone can give up. <laughs> Giving up is the easiest thing in the world. Anybody can do it. And then she looked yeah. at me and she said, never give up. And she passed me her phone number and she said, if you want to have another go, you come and see me. Yeah. And it left me with this feeling of just intense shame. And embarrassment that I had set myself a goal and I'd given up on it at the first hurdle. And I suppose that was a big life lesson for me. And I always say that whenever I'm giving talks at schools and colleges and things like that, what what you understand sort of had got a bit of life experience under your belt is that life is just a series of failing, but you yeah. just fail a bit better each time. So it, it's, it's it, you know, it, it's that's what it is. It's fail, fail again, but better. Repeat and and so i picked myself up i dusted myself down and i went and took her up on it and i went on the the bus once a week to her house in a village and we would talk about poems and plays and books and then she sent me back off to oxford and i got in amazing so that chance encounter it changed my life but it was but 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 it was because someone believed in me she believed in me and she knew what i was capable of and she wasn't pushy about it she She pushed the decision back onto me, but she was basically saying in that moment, "You know you can do a bit better than this."
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like like that, and it also kind of talks to your personal determination because you could yeah. have you know you could have not gone on the bus, you could have not called her, yeah. but that determination that you you've spoken of so eloquently kind of comes through. you're like, you, you needed someone to believe in you, but you also kind of believed in yourself, like she's right. I can it do is, better.
1: It is always better to try and fail than not try at all that's that is the big thing i have learned in in my life thus far (laughs) but it's true it's again it, it, it ties back into that what if you don't know if you don't try.
0: Absolutely. Okay, I mean, yeah, the book is, is great. It's really, really interesting. I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And now, because I've, ho- I've had you for like an hour, I want to do, I guess we'll do the lightning round and then I will let yes. you go and do more of your promotional <laughs> podcasts. But they won't be as good as this one because <laughs> as we discussed, you, this is the greatest I'm, podcast.
1: I, this has been the greatest podcast of all time.
0: Exactly. And if the tweet doesn't say that when you promote this podcast, I'm going to be very upset and play this recording. <laughs> it will, I promise. All right, so I've got four like lightning round questions, but yep. it's okay if we get off onto a tangent because it's pretty entertaining. Okay. So podcasts always end with like, oh, could you give me a recommendation for a book, a TV show, a movie, blah, 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 I don't care. I want your anti-recommendation. I want something that Uh-oh. is bad that people should avoid because it's not worth their time.
1: Oh, gosh. Oh, now then. Oh, crumbs. I'm re- <laughs> now, I- I'm really... Hang on a minute, because uh, hang on a minute, I've just got to make sure no one I know's in it. I'm li- <laughs> I'm I'm literally just going through the Rolodex card of all the people okay. I know just to make sure I don't <laughs> say something that's going to mortally offend someone. I know what I want to say, but I can't. I'm thinking of a TV show that's really not worth your time. There was something we tried over. Over lockdown, have you been doing loads of box sets? I mean, everyone's been doing box sets and then, oh God, I'm trying to think of something that I've genuinely, genuinely, like people have really gone on and on and on about it and it's shit.
0: We can come back to it if you want. All yeah, right, course, okay, yeah. right, hang
1: on, hang on. Just let me think about this properly.
0: <laughs> do you want me to do you want me to come back or do you want me to help? Like, it was it a British show or American show?
1: I think it was British
0: it BBC, was something that was
1: really over. Like everyone was mad for it, and was I watched it. Was like it recent doing, or like, at the, the
0: beginning of lockdown?
1: Dog shit. It was. It was. It was near the beginning.
0: Okay. Was it Dracula? Because I thought that was shit. It was like the three episodes okay. Dracula
1: one that came out. Okay. Thank you. Yes, it was. It was Dracula. <laughs> it was Dracula. Okay. Right. Okay. 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 I've decided. <laughs> now this comes with a slight proviso that the first episode, fine, super, fill your boots. Yeah. But don't bother watching the rest of Dracula.
0: Agreed. 100% agreed. I liked the first episode. The second episode, I was like, this is getting a little bit shit. And then the third episode, I watched like 10 yeah, minutes. I was it. Like, this was yeah. like super shit. <laughs> it. It. You see, I could have just given you that. We would have spared the five yeah. minutes. Anyway. I know. Okay. I know. So second question of the lightning round. <laughs> this is, like you mentioned, you've done a million of these interviews. Is there a question that you wanted to be asked or expected to be asked? But haven't been asked, and it can be this kind of interview process for for the book or any kind of interview that you've you've done about your career and stuff I mean, like that.
1: Let me think now. Mm. I'm I'm often wondered about if I have any proper ambitions left. I'd like to write a film. I think that that's something. I would still like to do. I don't know. If I will get to do it. I don't know. It'd be, not, it'd be nice to ask if if I could just. You know, it's sometimes, like in olden days, you you they used to be uh, like packed patronages you know yeah. do you remember? like the old times like someone really massively rich would just give you a shit ton yeah, yeah, of yeah. money for just hanging in a, yeah for just hanging around being vaguely interesting yeah. i i would love that job please <laughs> if anybody wants to employ me as just being someone who vaguely hangs out around you to be okay. to be occasionally interesting and light-hearted yeah. i'm available
0: <laughs> You need to you need to do podcasts with Russian billionaires rather than you know strangers in Edgeware. I okay. Second last question is: Is there anything you know can be unimportant or relevant importance where you've changed your mind recently? What did I change my mind on?
1: Well, it, it's on a on a human level. It's quite interesting. When Brexit happened, I was yeah. so I was so upset about it. I was genuinely upset about it because I. I ident I've I've spent all pretty much all my life identifying as a European citizen and so to have that identity taken away from me I was really cross and and angry about it and for a period of time i absolutely hated anyone who had voted for brexit like i hated them and then i became friends with a Brexiter, like proper pals with him and we couldn't we couldn't disagree on more things i mean it's not possible to disagree on something more but i love him and i really enjoy having conversations with people who I fundamentally disagree with. And if something if if one positive has come out of Brexit, it's that I have learnt that you don't have to hate people you don't agree with. And I think that's a that that's a lesson we can all learn in terms of people who have different political politics to you. You can disagree with them, you don't have to hate them.
0: Yeah, that's great. And then the last question is that it's been like unbelievably entertaining and really interesting to talk to you about your life, your motivations, kind of what drives you. Hopefully you've enjoyed the conversation as well. As, who else? As, as would... I keep
1: saying, it's the greatest podcast okay. I've ever been on.
0: Perfect. Who else would you like to hear in a conversation like this?
1: Who Who would be interesting is Sue Perkins. My, my old pal, Sue Perkins. And I'll tell you for why. It's because she is somebody who is far more brilliant than people fully understand. But she's also... One of the laziest bastards <laughs> I've ever known. But she has more talent in one of her fingernails. And if Yuck. she applied herself properly, she she could rule the world. And it is greatly frustrating to me <laughs> that she is a lazy bastard, even though she works all the time. Yes, even though she works all the time, she's a lazy bastard. And and when you're when you will understand what I mean by that by being you know creative on doing your thing and yeah. she is she is brilliant she is a brilliant writer she's a brilliant script editor but she's a genius she she is one of the very few people that I think of as being a proper genius she is one she is one trust me on that
0: um, okay Emma Kennedy the book is Never Ending Summer it was. Um a really fun read it's really really good uh even if it's you know turquoisey cover, don't be put off if you're a typical man like i am there is not a huge amount of drugs and death i will say that really interesting really funny and just just a good a good read all around thank you very much for being on my podcast